Hey, good morning. What a joy to be with you guys. Um, yeah, the vineyard and the coasts. I, I don't. I can't think of a, a reason not to come. <laughs> Plus, you're like giving me money, and then I get to run. I was gonna like grab the money and split. You know, I just like, I had this uh, cartoon image of me like a robber, just kind of like. Uh, don't don't worry. I can't keep any of it. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I love your leaders already, and I love what the Lord and the story of what God's doing among you is so fantastic. And it's always hard to introduce new people, isn't it? It's always hard to introduce somebody. I, the worst introduction of my life happened. I did it. <laughs> you ever hear really bad introductions? I did one of those, uh, by accident. I, we had the, I don't know if you know much about the Salvation Army, but the Salvation Army is organized, uh, with one world leader, sort of like the Pope except way more fallible. And um, <laughs> and so they have this one world leader, and uh, the world leader actually came to visit our, our ministry in Vancouver, Canada, where we worked in uh, the, the poorest postal in Canada, a drug-addicted neighborhood, really 8,000 injecting drug users in eight blocks. And we had moved in and church planted in that neighborhood uh, by the direction of God, and um, we were doing it in a different way. We were doing it in sort of a cell group model. And so the world leader, who was uh, General Eva Burroughs from Australia, she wanted to see how this worked, like how this played out. She's like, I want to go to one of these cell groups. And I, we were trying to find out, you know, what was the best one? So we picked the one that met at our house because it was the safest one because the other ones met in bars and in like common rooms and slum rooming houses and stuff. So we're like, okay, mine has a living room. So we'll meet there. And so we met, and my, but my cell group consisted of like my prostituted uh, friend, Jen, who is like does not take anything from anybody and pretty much does not believe anything you say <laughs> and really wasn't even a believer, you know, so <laughs> there's her. And then a couple mentally ill friends of mine and then a few students, you know, at a theological training uh, school and then me and then the world leader of the Salvation Army. And so I was thinking, you know, how do I even... How do I even introduce her? So I just thought less is more, you know, in some ways. So I just started off the group. I said, you know, we're so, like, honored and privileged. We have with us the world leader of the Salvation Army, uh, General Eva Burroughs. My friend Jen looks up. She goes, yeah, right. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, like, I'm trying to defend the general, you know. Like, I said, no, no, she really, she really is the world leader of the Salvation Army, and she's here in our living room. You know, it's quite an honor, you know. And Jen's like, uh-huh, yeah, right. And then the general, sort of feeling bad for me, sort of pitches in and says, no, she's really, she's telling you the truth. I really am the general of the Salvation Army, you know. And Jen just goes, yeah, so what, like your mother Teresa? <laughs> and General Eva says, uh, oh, no, I'm not Mother Teresa. She said, but I have met Mother Teresa. She's lovely, you know. And, and Jen says, yeah, right. And so my husband's overhearing the argument, you know, about whether or not this really is the world leader of the Salvation Army or not in my living room. And uh, and he just gets this biography of her life off of our shelf and kind of opens it up to the picture of her and Mother Teresa. And he just slips it to Jen, you know, just as the argument <laughs> is going on. And he just slips it to her and she looks down and she looks up and she looks down and she looks up and she says, holy shit, you are the general of the Salvation Army. <laughs> And that, for me, has forever sounded like what Revelation sounds like, isn't it? Just, there it is. 
You, it's really true. You know, like literally, I feel like the Bible, if it was more accurately <laughs> addressed to the kind of people I hang out with, would have a lot of those quotation marks, you know, just like, whoa, this really is happening. Like, and this is how you feel, of course, when you encounter Jesus, where it's like, what? This really is Jesus. I mean, even the story of that baptism, right? Just that this really is God and God really does love me. And this thing that's happening is really happening and we're involved in it and we get to be part of this thing and in a relationship with the living God and it's all just whoa like this this is happening to us you know and I feel like that on a regular basis I don't know about you but I I, I say that in my mind a lot just that holy this is how I'm in this you know I'm in this beautiful work that God wants to do on the earth and and it's so beautiful. I wanted to share a story from the scriptures. Um, there's two, there's several versions of the story. You know, uh, how you go to an event with somebody and then afterwards you're telling the story about what you encountered and it's different than what they encountered. And you're like, were you even at that event? You know, like what? And the, the Bibles, of course, the gospels are just like that perspectives of the same events from different perspectives. And so it's fascinating. Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, we're going to look at the Luke 9 one. Um, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can, uh, or you can just trust me. <laughs> A lot wouldn't, but you can. Um, Luke 9, and uh, there's lots, you know, there's a Matthew 17 version of the story. Uh, and when Matthew, I think, you know, lots of commentators, they're not quite sure who wrote Luke's gospel. Um, there is some rumor that it might have been a woman. And I feel like that might be true because Luke's gospel seems to tell more of the truth. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying it, it, Luke's gospel kind of has the angle where you just kind of went, did they, did he put that in there? You know, like, I don't know about you, but I'm like so glad I'm not a disciple at the time the Bible's being written because there's stuff in there that I would like, if I'm pretty sure even in heaven, they're like, did you have to have to put that in? You know, did you have to put that comment I made? <laughs> like that, because I feel like God wants to give us uh, occasions, models of real human beings, you know, real human beings trying to be like Jesus, trying to follow Jesus in the real world in a context of real life that's like dirty and messy and filled with doubt and confusion and uh, filled with faith, but faith that looks like trying to work something out in real life, not some sort of super spiritualized bubble-like Christianity, but a real uh, dusty faith. And so uh, Matthew's gospel has this beautiful picture that's painted. There's this revelation of Jesus. Uh, there's this... Um, you know, where he's revealed as the son of God. This is like the, the Messiah they were looking for. They weren't quite sure. They knew he was important. They knew he was a prophet. They knew John the Baptist had said, this is the guy. And so they had been following Jesus for some time, but they're still like, mm, is he really the guy? Because he's a little controversial. Didn't quite come the way they had expected. And so Jesus leads them up this mountain, just the tightest group of the disciples, so they can see this revelation of himself. This is uh, Luke 9, starting at verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared. <laughs> That's, it sounds just like, you know, two other guys were up there. But uh, the difference, of course, is that Moses has been dead for thousands of years. 
and uh, Elijah disappeared in a fiery chariot <laughs> uh, thousands of years ago. So when it says two men, Moses and Elijah, were with him, it's a little bit like, what? <laughs> you know, like, those men are gone. You know, like, those men are ancient history. So two men who are no longer on the earth, you know, who literally, they are with Jesus on the top of the mountain. So this is getting, like, epically Halloween-ish. <laughs> Suddenly, I remember one time I went to this church and they had this uh, costume party on Halloween night, you know, which in America is a much bigger deal, which it's good. It's not that big a deal here. But um, they said, you know, only biblical costumes, you know, because they were trying to fight the, you know, the Halloween spirit. And so my friend dressed as a dead guy. <laughs> and I came as the devil, you know, <laughs> and my other friend was a witch, you know, <laughs> Anyway, so I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know what, sometimes we think the Bible means it's safe. I'm like, has anyone read it? <laughs> I mean, it's intense. You know, these, right now, these are dead guys. This is like the zombie apocalypse, except like more important. You know, like this is Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. They showed up. They've been dead for thousands of years. And here they are appearing with Jesus. This is like a really big deal. And, um, and this is almost, this is like, they were glorious to see the scripture says, and they were speaking about his exodus. They were speaking about the exodus, which is about to be fulfilled. This is maybe one of the most important verses in the gospel, because of course, up until then, all of the Jewish people had thought the exodus already happened. As a matter of fact, we still think that, don't we? The Exodus not only happened in the Bible, it's like the second verse, the second book of the Bible. So the Exodus has already happened, but actually like it's been done over and over again on the big screen, <laughs> right? Steven Spielberg wrapped that whole thing up in an hour and a half, right? The Exodus is the most glorious story in history. It's maybe the best human story in the world of this, this, this people that got out, you know, a way out where there was no way out. This design that God had for humanity and for his people to be free and not to be oppressed anymore. And then you have Moses and Elijah appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and they're talking about the Exodus, which is to come which is like mind-blowingly cool because it means that the exodus that was, was just a taste. It was just a beginning. It was just a, it was like, this is how it's going to begin. But there's an exodus that's still coming. And actually, this is what Moses and Elijah are talking about, what Jesus is going to do, which is to make a way for the entire earth. Every person that was created, every single person created in the image of God who was never born to be a slave, but was born to be free, including you and yours and your people are part caught up in this Jesus deliverer of deliverers, right? That makes Moses just look like an appetizer. You ever fly first class? Anyone here? Really? I never do, right? Like I never, ever do. But one time I got upgraded. You know, you get bumped and you feel a little awkward, right? Because you're like, I totally know what I'm doing. Like, and I totally know what that bag's for. You know, like, I totally know what those socks are. But anyway, so I got upgraded to uh, first class and they brought this, they brought this uh, food out, you know, and it was all like fancy people food. You know what I mean? Like, it was all like little and fancy, you know, you pay like a thousand dollars and you get half the amount, you know, and 
And so it was like this little plate of all this fancy food that I didn't really even know what it was or even like what it was, but I was starving. I was so hungry. I'd been like on the road for a long, long time. So I just ate every single thing on the plate. You know, I just shoved my face with this fancy smoked salmon and all kinds of different things and all the bread. You know, they brought all the bread and I was like, oh man, rich people, they don't eat enough, you know, like, and I was just like, man, I was eating the bread and, and stuff. And then when it was, when it, when it, when I was all done, the, the lady came over and said, oh, you're, you're finished. Like, you know, I was like, well, there's still a little bit there I could lick off the plate. You know, like I said, yeah, I'm finished. And she said, okay, so are you ready for your, your main meal? <laughs> I was like, nuts. There's a main meal. Like I thought that's what, anyway. It's a bit like that, right? Like we, sometimes we settle for the appetizer and God has a whole meal plan for us. He's got a whole plan for us. And this is one of those occasions where the disciples thought, oh, I thought we had already experienced the goodness of God, but there's so much more. And this is true, of course, in our discipleship journey for all of us all the time. This is true. There's always more. I mean, I'm always surprised at the boundless nature of God's salvation, the boundless nature of his freedom, the boundless nature. He has more planned for us. So this is happening. This is like if you were a Jewish boy, this would be like going to Disneyland. You are literally encountering the Messiah. The revel, the rev, you know, this has been, this has been hundreds and hundreds of silence and oppression and fear. And they've been holding out this promise. They've been going to Sunday school and they're being told, hang in there, guys. There's coming a savior. There's coming a Messiah who's going to switch things around. That's going to bring hope where there's no hope. There's going to bring, there's been generations of this and the Messiah has never come, has not come, has not come. And then boom, here they are right in the place where the Messiah is revealed. I mean, this is like, what? I get to be on the mountain where Jesus, and then not only is Jesus revealed, but also Moses is there, who is like who they've been following all these years. They're disciples of Moses. That's how they would refer to themselves. So they're like, Moses is there, and Elijah, the fiery prophet, is there. He's the guy that like literally is just speaking fire, right? It's just speaking like that revival prophetic word. John the Baptist, of course, standing up to King Herod himself, which is like the the, the law of the land that can like really get you in big trouble, you know? And John the Baptist filled with the fiery spirit of Elijah says to him, you're a snake. And like, there's going to come, the Messiah is coming. He's going to take an ax. He's going to chop down your tree, <laughs> you know, which I'm pretty sure sounded different then. I mean, this is like the fiery spirit of Elijah. And these guys are here. And this is why this is, and they're talking about this thing that's coming and then listen to verse 32. It's like hilarious. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. <laughs> Don't you hate it when that happens? Now, just for the record, that's not in any other record. Yeah, you know, that's not in any other of the accounts. There's no sleeping going on in Matthew. You know, that's, that wasn't mentioned. But I don't know if it's just me or if you have this, if you, if you know your Bibles very well, but it feels like to me the disciples must suffer from narcolepsy. You know, do, is it just me or are they always falling asleep? Right? I mean, even literally when Jesus gets to his final, you know, his final night, the night of like the last night of his life on earth, his closest companions, and he says to them, look, do you think it's possible maybe <laughs> for you just tonight <laughs> to stay awake and pray for like maybe one or two hours? I mean, he even like conditions it, you know, he's just like, do you think it's possible tonight of all nights, the last night, the most powerful, painful night of my life for you guys to stay awake? 
and pray for about an hour. And is it? Is it Jesus comes out of the garden of Gethsemane and he finds the disciples, that's right, asleep, <laughs> snoozing, snoozing away while Jesus sweats drops of blood, right? There is this, you know, fascinating, sleepy spirit on disciples. You know, years and years ago, I had a dream that forever changed my life. I, I dreamt that I walked through a, a doorway and the doorway had this big uh, uh, spider web in it. And at the bottom, there was this big, fat, uh, hairy spider. And I didn't see it. You know, you walk through a doorway and, you don't, and you're like, ugh, I, I felt the web, but I didn't notice that the, the spider had bit me. And so when I go into the room in this dream, I instantly, I just start feeling sleepy, like very tired. And ta-da, a cot appears, you know, just a bed in the room. And I was like, oh, perfect, because I'm exhausted. So I lie down on the bed. And as soon as I lie down on the bed, I can literally not move. I'm completely paralyzed. I'm still awake, but I'm paralyzed. And then from the four corners of this room, these thousands of tiny little spiders. It's just a dream. Just hang on. <laughs> they come and they consume me, these spiders. Now, I'm not scared of very many things, but spiders are on my list. So I woke up from the dream and I did what any good Christian would do. I was like, I rebuke that dream and send it back from hell from which it came because everybody knows that the devil made spiders. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, you know, what? This is crazy. And I know, you know, I know, I don't think it says it in the Bible, but I know I saw in a movie one time, you really shouldn't die in your sleep. <laughs> so I was like, that can't be good either. So I was like, I died in my sleep, these thousands of spiders. I was bit by this hairy thing. I was just like, this is definitely an assignment of death over my life. I'm breaking it off, you know, like, so I'm praying. And the next night it comes back. And then I'm praying again. The next night the dream comes back. Then I, I do like deep theological things. Like I put my Bible under my pillow, you know, anoint the doors of my room, you know, and then finally, like when it's come to, you know, when I, I still coming, I'm not sleeping. I keep getting this recurring dream. I'm just like, I got to call some of my heavyweights. So I look in my, I look in my contact list for everyone I know who can speak in tongues, you know, just anyone who has some sort of spiritual weird thing going on. Cause they might be able to help me. You know how you, those people, you don't really say, you know, but then you, when you need them, you know them, you know, so I'm like, I got to call these people, you know, so I call them up and I'm just like, you guys got to come. There's this like spirit of death. There's this like dream that keeps coming to me and I'm like trying to get rid of it and I can't get rid of it. So they come and blow a shofar and like march around my house and wave a flag and it's like awesome. And then the dream came back again. So I called them. I'm like, I got my Bible under my pillow. My, my pillow's anointed. You guys blew the show far, like we've rebuked this dream, like what is going on? Like, I thought you were bringing your A game, like come back, you know. So they came back and we had a little prayer time. And one of the, one of the women said to me, you know, have you asked God for an interpretation for the dream? <laughs> I said, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I get bitten by a spider and then consumed by thousands more. I think I know the interpretation of the dream. She said, well, I just really feel like there's some kind of thing you're supposed to, I think God has a message in it for you. I don't think it's from the devil. And I was just like, well, charismatics, you know, I just was like, all right, I'll ask. So, so I'm like, God, is there a message besides sudden death, uh, in this dream, you know, for me? And instantly I had an interpretation of the dream that I had walked through a cultural doorway 
of a spiritual sleepiness. Uh, the big fat hairy spider was a, a culture of fat, a culture of comfort, a culture of wealth, a culture of excess. And that actually what it had bitten me with, what it had infected me with is a sleepy spiritual condition. So that I felt sleepy. I didn't feel sleepy when it was time to watch a Netflix series. I only felt sleepy when it was time to pray. I only felt sleepy when it was time to go serve the poor. I only felt sleepy when it was like get up in the morning and read my Bible. I only felt sleepy when it was a spiritual uh, situation. I never felt sleepy when it was time to go to the, the out for a restaurant or, or go to the movies or anything like that. It was a spiritual infection. And what happened was if I gave into that infection, this is the Lord said, if you give into that spirit, if you lie down, if you say, I just can't pray a 24-7 prayer, it's too much, I'm too tired, and you lie down, you will be paralyzed as the church. And then these thousands of little things, they're not scary by themselves. Because even I don't like spiders, but I know that if it came to it, I could take it. I'm bigger. <laughs> I got a shoe. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not gonna, a spider's not gonna take me out. Like, I can take on a spider, even as, even though I'm scared. I know I can do it, but I can't do it if I can't move. I'm at the mercy of the tiniest little things. And here's what the Lord said. You will not, the church will not be consumed by big, glorious battles. They'll be consumed by tiny things that don't even matter. Right? Like what their church looks like or what style of worship they do or how shiny the speaking is or what this is or what people think of them or all kinds. I mean, you will be consumed by a thousand things that don't even matter if you can't wake up. So then I, I said to the Lord, you know, how do I wake up? Because I'm pretty sleepy. How do I wake up? I don't want to die. Listen, I don't mind dying in some glorious epic battle fighting Goliath or something like take me out then but I don't want to die a thousand little insignificant deaths I don't want to die of a thousand paper cuts I don't want my life not to matter I don't want to lie down on the job I want to actually I want to be part of this thing called the kingdom of God coming to the world how do I wake up and God instantly told me another story. I was working nights at a, a hostel. You reminded me of this. I was working nights at this host, women's hostel, and I'd have to drive in Canada in the winter, which is just like kind of its own punishment. And uh, I would have to drive in the winter on this highway to get back to where I was living. And I, every time I would do this, I would get sleepy at the wheel because I'd been up all night working, but I really needed to just get home so I could crash. So I would do things to wake myself up. Like at the beginning, I would just turn up the radio, like really obnoxiously loud. You know, just really why our worship should be louder than we think. Just to jar me a little bit in the car. Just to be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I'd, I'd try to strum along on the stereo, you know, like, and it's just, and then that wouldn't work. I'd still be nodding, so I would start pinching myself. Which is weird if you think about it. You know, you don't normally like, you know, embrace your own personal pain. I start pinching myself and then, but you know, and that wouldn't really work. So then I start smacking myself just to get the blood flowing, you know, just like, and if somebody once said to me, did you ever think of pulling over? <laughs> I was like, the thought never occurred to me. Anyway, I start smacking myself. You know, occasionally I think about whoever was driving beside me and what they might have thought, you know, but smacking myself and then finally I did what you are not supposed to every Canadian knows better than this but it's like minus whatever outside snowing I just wound my window down 
And I stuck my head out my window and just, I mean, it was like, I was wide awake. I mean, my eyes were not closing, even if I wanted them to. They were frozen open, you know, like there was no going back to sleep. And I felt like the Lord said, do that. Do that. I was like, what? (laughs) He said, wake yourself up. Wake yourself up. Like whatever you have to do, and this is a really fascinating thing. If you, if you, if you read more and more of Jesus and the disciples, he's always like, you know, these sort of things, these kind of epic things, when they're hard things, when they're difficult things, when they're difficult seasons, he'll say the only way this is going to work out is through fasting and prayer. Fasting, by the very definition of it, you should try it. It's like slapping yourself in the face. It literally is. It's a spiritual version of slapping yourself in the face. I dare you to go without food for a day. Your body will be wide awake. Your body will be like, you are the dumbest person in the world. It will wake up. It will say, feed me, feed me, feed me. You will be like wide awake. Wake yourself up. Whatever you need to do, embrace some discomfort in your life. Begin to actually push back against the infection of excess and comfort and sleep and wealth. This is one of the most powerful stories we've ever had over and over and over again is this 24-7 prayer thing. I can't tell you how revolutionary it's been in our churches, in my own personal life, because it's uncomfortable, because it's hard, because it's different. You know, whenever we do 24-7 prayer, my husband always takes 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. I always say, why do you do that? That is like the worst possible time. Like that's the time where like you're just, you're never going to sleep. You're not going to sleep before enough and you're not going to sleep after enough. And you're just going to be like, like he doesn't get miserable. But if he did, if he was human, he would get miserable. And I'd be like, why do you pick that time? And he looks at me, he says, because it's the hardest. I'm waking up. I'm waking up. I'm choosing it. I'm embracing it. I'm going to posture myself in such a way that when the revelations of Jesus come, when the exodus is coming, when God's moving on the earth, I will not be asleep. I won't be asleep. I'm not going to sleep this one out. I'm going to wake myself up. I'm going to wake myself up so that I actually, when I do go, it'll be out with some sort of battle. It'll be out in the thick of the fight. So here's some good news. You can wake yourself up. You can. This is the delight. This is the kingdom coming. This is the invitation. Why don't you try some discomfort? Why don't you try some pinching of yourself? Why don't you try something that's different? Tell somebody that doesn't know about Jesus. That wakes you up. (laughs) It is uncomfortable. It gets weird. It's like pinching yourself. You know, it really is. Give it a go. Try it out. It'll wake your spirit up. And verse 32 says, as Peter and the others had fallen asleep, but when they woke up, they saw Jesus's glory and the two men standing with them. In other words, it's not too late. It's not too late. They don't miss it. They wake up in time. See, this is the thing. I really just believe the Lord's waking up his church in time. It's not too late. It's not too late. You didn't miss out. You know, you're not, this is not too late to wake yourselves up. Do it now. Wake up before it's too late so you can see the glory of Jesus And you can be part of what he's doing on the earth. And Moses and Elijah, they start to leave. And Peter, not even knowing what he's saying, he blurts out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them. Terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen 
to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. Moses, without a doubt, represents everything the disciples knew about what it meant to be Jewish. Moses represents the way things used to be. Moses literally had written down how to measure your holiness. I mean, literally, if there was a manual for how to be Jewish, Moses wrote it. The disciples grew up memorizing it. Moses represents everything the disciples knew about what it meant to be disciples. Elijah represented a perfect future. Elijah represented the right way, (laughs) the exact right way, this fiery prophetic idea of a perfect way. Do you remember when John the Baptist, he he cites Elijah and he, he confronts Herod, do you remember? And then Herod imprisons him. And John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to Jesus saying, uh, <laughs> I thought you were the one that was going to take Herod out. I'm in prison. <laughs> this isn't working out how I had envisioned it. This is not the perfect future that I had declared. <laughs> What's going on? And Elijah represents the way things ought to be in a perfect world. Listen, Bonhoeffer, he's a a famous uh, theologian who was killed by the Nazis for standing up against Hitler uh, two days before the end of World War II. And uh, during the regime of the Nazis, he started an underground uh, training for priests in the confessing church. He was trying to keep Christianity alive when it had been co-opted by the state. And so he trained, they had these houses, they were like kind of secret houses, community houses of all these brothers that were actually in training to be priests. And he wrote a little book called Life Together, which was the lessons that they had learned about how to actually be the church in the midst of all of these things. And there's just some fascinating things there. But one of the things that so struck me uh, as true in my own personal experience of doing church is he said the greatest enemy to Christian community is the idea that there's a perfect Christian community. He says, the greatest enemy of every church, of every home, he said, of every brother, even in my own mind, he said, the greatest enemy for me being really present in my own local community is this idea that there's somewhere, somehow, some possibility of a perfect one, this utopian thing. And Elijah represents that perfect thing, the final word, the perfect word, And here's what happens. Moses and Elijah disappear. Now, I need to tell you how to catch monkeys in South America. It's key information in New Zealand. You're going to need to know this. But they, 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 it's like fascinating what they do. They just, they drill a tiny hole in a coconut and they tie the coconut to a tree trunk. And they put sugar inside of the coconut. But the hole in the coconut is only big enough for a monkey's hand that when it's open. Then it grabs the, it grabs the sugar because like monkeys and women, they share that, that love. <laughs> right? Good luck. Good luck getting sugar away from a monkey or a woman. So, right? So those monkeys just, and they grab that sugar and then they just start like, Wah! And they're freaking out. They're making a lot of noise. 
but they will not let go. And monkey hunters have the best job in the world. They just go around with a net. There's one. <laughs> there's two. There's, there's not even a fight. Just a monkey going, whoa, with his hand stuck in a coconut because he's not letting go of the sugar, even if it means his own captivity. Now, listen, that's a fantastic story. You can tell anyone to let go of something harmful, right? You got to let go of an addiction. You got to let go of a relationship that's toxic. So you got to let go or it's going to trap you. It makes total sense. But what if the sugar is something good? but it's holding you back. What if the sugar is how church used to be? What if the sugar is, this is how we did things in my last church, or this is how we did things when I was growing up at church, or this is how we used to do things, and you're hanging on to that sugar and that coconut because that's what you know and you cannot let go. I mean, what if the sugar for the disciples is, this is what it means to be Jewish, this is what the Messiah is supposed to look like. Or what if the sugar is this idea of utopia in your head, this Elijah vision that you know what it's supposed to be, and it's supposed to be perfect. And so you spend most of your life judging things for what they could be instead of what they are. Moses and Elijah disappear, and there is only Jesus. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. And Jesus makes his way in this story off the mountain. And he goes straight to the valley where there is a child in deep need, tormented from youth, the scripture says, and no one can help him. (laughs) And just by the way, when you get a glimpse of the glory of God, When you start to understand who Jesus really is, when you wake yourself up enough to encounter his glory, when you're willing to let go of what you used to know and let go of what you think you should know and just follow Jesus, you will be liberated. It'll be exhilarating. It'll be like something you've never done before. It'll be an adventure of a lifetime. It will be painful and awesome at the same time. It will be everything. You will go out fighting instead of living insignificant little things killing you one paper cut at a time, but he will always lead you to a place that's too hard for you. You follow the pattern of Jesus yourself. When this happens, every time you start following Jesus and then you get to a place where you're embarrassed because you think like, I should probably have this and I can't. The disciples can't cast the spirit out. They're embarrassed publicly because all the religious leaders are there and said like, what kind of power do you think you have? You can't even make this work for one boy. You know, and all of this, and it's this deep end. And here's the other thing. It feels deep and insignificant at the same time. It's just one kid. We have a whole nation to change. And you're spending our time on this one kid who's a troublemaker, who's like, who's bringing up our very own insignificance, our very own incompetence, the embarrassing places, in private places where we lack power. And Jesus is like, that's right. (laughs) Follow me. Bring the kid to me. Let's start with what's right in front of us. Let's start with those areas that are too hard for us. Let's start with those places that overwhelm us. Let's start with those places that embarrass us. Let's start right here in the deep end. Follow me. This is the way to the cross. So I want to pray for you. I don't, I don't know, uh, what your need is. I, I don't, some of you might just be struggling with a sleepy spirit. 
Some of you might be hanging on to a coconut, <laughs> making a lot of noise. And it might just be time to let go. Let go of all the stuff that you think you know of how things used to be measured and how things used to be done. Or let go of, please let go of how things should be done. Let Moses and Elijah disappear and, and maybe we could have a fresh revelation of Jesus. Maybe we could hear again today, this is my son. This is who it's about. This is what you're waking up for. Follow him. Follow him all the way down the mountain. Follow him to the boy in need. Follow him to your community. Follow him to the places that feel too hard and are embarrassing to address. Follow him right there. And you'll find this incredible kingdom opening up for you to participate in its coming. Let me pray for you. God, we're so thankful that it's not too late. Thank you. Thanks that it's not too late. Would you please rescue us from a, a, a sleepy culture? Would you rescue us and liberate us from a sleeping infection that lulls us to sleep and ends in our death? Would you show us how? You know, and even I just pray for these guys as they embark on this 24-7 thing. I just, I pray you would use it as a means by which to awaken Awaken places, awaken them in ways to see your glory like they never have before. Fresh encounters, fresh visions, fresh understandings of what you are, who you are, what you're doing, and how we can follow you in today's world right now. I pray you would, you would break off that spirit. You would help us, give us strategies to stir ourselves up, to wake ourselves up like you instructed over and over and over again in the word. And I would pray you would help us to let go of the things that we hang on to that prevent us from being able to follow you. And I wonder if you would, just as a matter of prayer, just take your hands um, in front of you and, and, and clench them really tight. And I, w I want you to just think of the things that you might be hanging on to. Maybe value systems and structures or how you perceive things ought to be or judgments or even old labels on your life of what other people have thought of you and said so. Maybe you're stuck in what should be even in your own life. And then just as a, an act of prayer, which I, I do, I do this many times a day. It's just to release your hands. Just open your hand up. And just in your own heart, in your own mind, just say, I'm letting go. I'm letting go of expectations. I'm letting go of disappointments. I'm letting go of past hurts. I'm letting go of fear and failure. I'm letting go of the past and some perfect future. And Jesus, I'm embracing you. I choose to follow you. We surrender these things to you. We surrender our lives to you. We surrender our future to you. We love you. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Christ, the Savior of the world. Thank you for the exodus that is still coming. Thanks that we're part of a people set free who get to be part of setting other people free. Show us how. Open-handed, surrendered lives, we follow you. Amen.